The shift towards a new strategy of preventative war was set out in the National Security Strategy of the United States, published in 2002, updated in 2006. Yes, that's right. I think that is exactly right. Although it is important to remember, I think that notions of preemptive war are not new in terms of the United States' discussion of foreign policy. So, for example, if you go back to the 1950s and early 1960s during the Cold War, before the Soviet Union gained a secure second strike capability in military terms, which means an ability to survive an initial nuclear attack and then respond in kind against the United States. Before that period, when the Soviet Union was clearly not, as it were, superpower status, there was serious high-level discussion in the United States about preemptive war against the Soviet. Well, what would have been actually preventative war mm-hmm. against the Soviet Union to forestall the ability of the Soviet Union to check American military power. And discussions of rollback of communism in Eastern Europe and even of limited nuclear war against the Soviets in the fifties were discussions around preemption and prevention.、Uh, they didn't get anywhere then, but it's I think important to recognise that the American military and aspects of the political elite have always thought about these issues in some strategic circumstances. What has happened in Iraq? Why, when the United States and its allies, foremost among them Britain, were able to relatively easily remove Saddam Hussein in 2003, has the U.S. found it so difficult to stabilize the country and defeat the post-Saddam insurgency since 2003? I think there's two levels of answer to that, and I'm still not clear in my own mind which of them is is more important. At one level, one can point to a Reckless, arrogant lack of planning for the aftermath. The number of troops deployed, the strategy employed, the relationship to neighbouring states in the region, and the like, and the immediate forms of post-war occupation and administration. And you could look at a series of decisions that were taken both prior to the conflict in terms of the, because it were the commitment of personnel and resources, but also to. A series of decisions that the military and then civilian administrators took in the first few days, weeks, and months after the conflict, and really, it is an almost unbelievable catalogue of, of errors, stupidity, neglect, which is, you know, historians will one day try and explain how a country like the United States could have ever done such a thing, and, it, and really, one's mind does boggle at times that such a kind of serious undertaking was done. With so little thought to the aftermath, and maybe they believed the Iraqi National Congress that they would be welcomed as liberators and that there would be a kind of、uh, an alternative government in waiting. In a sense, who knows? But so, at one level, you could talk about failures of planning, execution, and policy in the immediate run-up and an aftermath of the war. Which then create a situation of, in a sense, not just that you have deposed a regime, but you've actually broken a state, and that therefore there is no political order. And as we know from many other instances around the world, putting states back together when not just the regime has gone, but the whole notion of statehood has been compromised, is exceptionally difficult. That's one possible answer, and I think that has a lot of truth in it. But I think there might be some. Deeper questions around: Suppose 
that the planning and the execution had been better attended to, suppose that some of the decision-making had been better, suppose there had been more troops on the ground to pacify particularly Baghdad immediately after the fall of, of Saddam's regime. I think there's still a question in what is effectively a fully post-colonial world now. And what I mean by that is that even, even in, the, as it were, some of the weakest and least developed states, the mass of the population is mobilised into national political spaces. So you're trying to administer or rule societies which are very different from the societies in which kind of the European empires and in the colonial period, and in which the means of fairly low-level but rather lethal violence are widely dispersed. It doesn't take a great deal of technology to blow up marines using explosive devices at the side of a road. Everybody's got uh, automatic weapons and so on. So that insurgent movements, resistance movements, whatever you want to call them, are able to deploy forms of violence against any occupying power, which won't impose large numbers of casualties. But then that brings me to the other consideration, which is, is the United States, in terms of its society and politics, capable of sustaining long commitments in which very, very quickly the population, the, the US population, that is, do not regard vital national interests as being at stake. I mean, clearly, if the United States, for instance, was at war with some major power, they'd have no problem sustaining a war effort. The difficulty is, can you sustain that kind of quasi-imperial administration in conditions of modern democratic politics? And my guess is you can't, actually. I don't think that's specific to the United States. Britain has had exactly the same problem of sustaining its commitments in Iraq. So if you put those two things together, that the, the, the fact that the bulk of the population is mobilised into politics into, in the society you're trying to occupy and reorder, that the means of low-level but nonetheless lethal violence are widely dispersed, and put that alongside the very limited tolerance of domestic populations in the United States or Britain for these kinds of uh, foreign entanglements... It may be that even a much better planned and much better resourced occupation would have soon found itself in, in very similar difficulties. And I, I don't think we know yet as to kind of what the balance is between those rather local bureaucratic considerations versus considerations which may actually tell us much more about the potential limits of military power, not just now, but you know, as we look to the decades ahead. Because the role of the insurgency or the in Iraq is that its objective is not necessarily to defeat the United States but not to permit the United States to defeat it. So once it obliges the United States to spend, as is estimated, a $5,000 a minute in Iraq and causing fatalities to troops, this is a way in which a gnat can bother uh, a guerrilla. Absolutely. I mean, this is a form of, of uh, what's sometimes called asymmetrical conflict in which the terms at stake are different for the parties. This is not like a war between two states in which both regard it as equally important that they win. As you say, for the insurgents, it's simply that they not be defeated. So that what's at stake for each side is very, very different. And therefore, the commitment to it is very, very different. And there are many instances of, in a sense, the what on paper looks like the militarily powerful party to the conflict losing. Vietnam is a classic case. If one compares the United States military power during Vietnam with those of the, the forces it was fighting against in Vietnam, then you would have, if you just looked at the military balance of power, it's kind of it's a one-way show. But again, there was an example of asymmetric conflict that what 
that conflict meant to the North Vietnamese was vastly more important than what it meant in the end to the United States. So in these cases, actually, in cases of asymmetrical conflict where the apparently weaker antagonist is able to exploit, if you like, the political weakness of the militarily stronger country, it doesn't at all follow that, to go back to our starting point in this discussion, that military supremacy translates into political victory. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.